Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The manhunt for a suspected killer in Texas is now expanding. The lead starts right now. Where is Francisco Opreza? Police say that the man previously deported four times killed his neighbor's execution style after they complained about noise from his Friday night gunfire. And now agents at the border are being told to be on alert. As authorities admit, they have no idea where he is. Plus, E. Jean Carroll back on the stand under aggressive cross-examination from Donald Trump's attorneys. Her answers to some of their challenging questions as they seek to undermine her credibility. And the second largest bank collapse in U.S. history. First Republic taken over by J.P. Morgan Chase earlier. Are more banks in jeopardy of going down? How secure are your deposits? And how secure is the U.S. economy? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our national lead and the urgent manhunt to find the suspect behind a massacre. More than 200 law enforcement officers are currently searching for the man they say murdered five people on Friday night at a home outside Houston, Texas. Police say they have no real leads in the hunt for him, 38-year-old Francisco Opreza. Sources tell CNN that federal officers patrolling the southern border have been told to be on the lookout in case Oropesa tries to flee to Mexico. He is, after all, a Mexican national. And a government source says he had been deported from the U.S. at least four times before. Survivors of the attack say Oropesa shot up his neighbor's house after they asked him to stop firing his weapon so close to their property because their baby was trying to sleep. The murdered include nine-year-old Daniel Lasso Guzman and his mother Sonia. Police say all of the victims appear to have been shot execution style. CNN's Ed Lavendera starts off our coverage from Cleveland, Texas, where the other innocent victims have now all been identified. It's day three of the manhunt for 38-year-old Francisco Oropesa, accused of shooting and killing five people in Cleveland, Texas on Friday night. And according to the FBI, they still have no leads in the shootings of nine-year-old Daniel Enrique Lasso Guzman, his mother, Sonia Argentina Guzman, Diana Velasquez Alvarado, Ulisa Molina Rivera, and Jose Jonathan Casares. What we need from the public is any type of information, because right now, we're just uh, we're running into dead ends. There's an $80,000 reward for information leading investigators to the suspect who the FBI calls armed and dangerous, while officers search door-to-door in neighborhoods north of Houston. We have over 200 law enforcement personnel from federal, state, and local agencies trying to bring this subject into custody. U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement says Oropesa has been deported at least four times, the first time in March 2009, and was convicted of driving while intoxicated in 2012. The local sheriff said Oropesa had been drinking before the violence on Friday began, detailing the events that led up to the shooting. The victims, uh, they came over to the fence, said, hey, could you mind not shooting uh, out in the yard? We have a young baby that's... uh, trying to go to sleep. 
Cinco veces. Wilson Garcia, whose wife and nine-year-old son were shot and killed Friday night, says they called 911 five times that night. They asked the gunman to shoot away from his property. He said instead the gunman started shooting inside the house where 15 people, including at least four children, were present. Only 10 survived. Everybody that was shot was shot from the neck up, almost execution style. Multiple people were found dead in different rooms. Authorities say they believe two women died shielding children. Garcia says as his wife lay dying, one of the women helped him jump out of the window so he could survive for his two other children. Texas Governor Greg Abbott unleashed a firestorm of criticism after the shootings when he tweeted, I've announced a $50,000 reward for info on the criminal who killed five illegal immigrants Friday. At the same time, the sheriff gave an emotional response about the term used to describe the victims. My heart. is with this eight-year-old little boy. I don't, I don't care if he was here legally. And Jake, a neighbor of Francisco Oropesa, also detailed a violent outburst that happened in a neighborhood party, a baptismal celebration, about a year and a half ago. This neighbor says that Oropesa and his wife and family were invited to the party, and they had a DJ playing music in the front yard. Another neighbor came over, asked them to turn down the music. That made Oropesa, according to this woman, this neighbor, so angry that he pulled out a 9mm handgun in front of everyone and emptied a magazine full of ammunition into to the ground. She says after that, the families did not communicate very much. Jake? Oof. Ed Lavendera, thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss CNN security correspondent Josh Campbell, who used to work at the FBI, and also Juliet Cayenne, who served at the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, Josh, we're going on nearly three full days, and police say that they have no credible leads. Um, what's going on behind the scenes as they try to locate the suspect? And are you surprised uh, three days later, still no leads? Well, it's very difficult work. We know that initially, Jake, police were able to locate the suspect's cell phone and track him for some period of time. But then on Saturday, the day after these uh, horrific shootings, they found his phone that was uh, recovered by authority. So he no longer had it on his person. We also know that police used bloodhounds to try to track him. They eventually lost the scent. And so right now they are at a dead end. They're told by officials that they're going door to door, actually trying to ask people in the area, have you seen this person? Do you have a ring doorbell camera footage, for example? that can help us put this person in a particular location at any given time. I'm also told by law enforcement sources that officers on both sides of the border, the U.S.-Mexico border, are on, on alert for this person in case he does try to flee to Mexico. And, of course, Jake, the police doing what we've seen so often, that is appealing to the public, offering this $80,000 reward, hoping that someone will see something and pick up the phone and call 911. And, Juliet, on, on the Mexico side of this, I mean, the suspect is a Mexican national. He, he was in this country right. illegally. He was previously deported four times for being in this country uh, illegally. I I would think that that would complicate the search. It absolutely would. It means that he has relatively recent ties to Mexico. He has not been here for 20 or 30 years and has just been trying to get underneath the the radar. There are so many questions about his status and ability to cross the border. If you look at 2009, 2012, uh, 2016, and then how he got in most recently is not at all clear, but he's having interactions with law enforcement. We know in our reporting about this uh, party, we know that there were concerns about him. 
And so it just goes to, in some ways, the sort of permissiveness, not just of our borders, but also anyone who's been down to that part of the country knows that there's a there's a just a different attitude about legality and illegality. I think that we heard that from the sheriff that that this porousness is sort of better, is understood differently there than the sort of more legalistic aspects that that I think that that we tend to view it as. Uh, but this is going to have to be explained about how he was able to get in this many times. And then, of course, what was happening in Mexico, uh, because if he has family still there, ties still there, chances are he got there relatively quickly. Josh, a source told CNN that, that he had the suspect had a collection of weapons. But, but if, he, if he was indeed in the country illegally, which he was, he could not legally purchase those firearms. Um, is that not a problem if you want to get a gun? No, it certainly is. And I can tell you as, you know, a native Texan, someone who grew up involved in youth shooting sports, it is so easy to get a gun in Texas if you are buying it from a private seller. If you buy from a licensed dealer, you're required to go through a federal background check. But again, if it's a person to person sale, you know, you meet someone on Facebook and you decide, hey, let's meet up. I want to buy your gun or you sell your gun to a friend. You don't have to go through that background check. So although you're right, Jake, that uh, people who are in this country illegally cannot purchase a weapon, these uh, point to point sales between private sellers and private purchasers create a lot of loopholes. Juliet, some uh, advocates and Democrats have been criticizing uh, Texas Republican uh, Governor Greg Abbott after Abbott posted, quote, I've announced a 50,000 reward for information on the criminal who killed five illegal immigrants Friday, unquote, um, referring to the five victims as illegal immigrants. Uh, The governor's office has has acknowledged that at least one of the victims might have been in the U.S., Legally, um, but, you know, as we heard from the the law enforcement official in uh, Ed's piece just a minute ago, these are five victims. Does it matter if they were in the country illegally or not? No, no. And I I take a different approach to this. Look, I mean, obviously, the the governor knew what he was doing. He knows what the term illegal means rather than using the the, the appropriate term, which is undocumented. But I want to pose a different challenge that the governor has related and may go to why we're not able to find him. He has now put this as a le- illegal or legal immigrant issue. In other words, part of the, the hunt. Now, if you thought about what communities are likely to know where the suspect is, it is going to be people whose status is not known um, or whose status may be unlawful. Now, anyone, Josh knows this, anyone in law, law enforcement knows what you need to do is create trust with that community and say, look, we're not using this for deportation reasons. We're not using this uh, to, uh, you know, as a ruse to get you out of the country. We need your help. And so while the sheriff is saying, everyone help us, right, this, these are populations of, of people with uh, of, of undocumented uh, uh, people, the Abbott just completely undermined that by putting it in the lens of, well, they're illegals, putting it in the immigration lens. And so I think that we should challenge Governor Abbott, not just on the politics of immigration, but just how could this possibly this might possibly be hurting the very manhunt uh, that all of us want, whatever our whatever our immigration status. Yeah. Julia Kayam, Josh Campbell, thanks to both. You appreciate it. We have some breaking news in our national league now. Police are reporting multiple fatalities as a result of a dust storm in central Illinois. That interstate that you're looking at right there now shut down. The details are just coming into CNN. We'll bring that to you next. And Hunter Biden in court, the paternity case in Arkansas that likely has the Justice Department and House Republicans taking notes. Stay with us. We have some breaking news for you now. A dangerous dust storm has unfortunately turned deadly in central Illinois. 
The state police say that multiple people are dead. At least 30 others have been taken to the hospital after low visibility led to multiple pileups on the interstate. Police say anywhere between 60 and 80 cars and tractor trailers were involved in those wrecks. Let's bring in CNN meteorologist Chad Myers. Chad, what caused the storm? Big low pressure center and a cold front that came through over the weekend brought very cold air. We know that. But also on the map behind me, everywhere that you see red, that's a 40 mile per hour or greater wind gust coming right now. Coming in from the west right across a north-south highway. So here's the wind coming in, and I-55 is like that. And the wind blew right across the interstate and made that terrible, terrible dust storm. Here is Springfield, Illinois, right through here. Here's I-55. Now I'm going to zoom in to show you what else, not just the wind, made this event. Farm fields. All of these plows going through the farm fields this time of year, mixing up the dirt. It's not just one packed layer that had snow on it this six weeks ago. All of a sudden, you have all of the farmers with their discs and their harrows and their plows making this dust loose. And when the wind blew today, 45 miles per hour, the dust from that equipment made this dust storm. With fatal consequences, Chad Myers, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Turning to our world lead. Today in Paris, uh, May Day labor rallies for May 1st were instead wide-scale protests. Some turned violent. At one point, police even used water cannons on crowds. CNN's Melissa Bell's in Paris for us. And Melissa, the retirement plan, that's a done deal. So can these protests have any impact? That's right. This is happening from September, Jake. The French will be working longer than they had been in the past. I think the point of the unions today was really to get the numbers on the street to show that even if this particular pension reform has gone through, any other reforms that Emmanuel Macron may have been planning as legacy reforms for his next four years, they're going to conjure up these uh, protesters out on the street to make that as difficult as they can. It's the cleanup operation going on around me now. This is one of the buildings that burned throughout the day here at the Place de la Nation, or rather what's left of it. It was a day of remarkable violence. I think what struck us the most, Jake, was how quickly it escalated. And that was because you really had far more of those black bloc, the extreme left-wing protesters who come out seeking confrontation with the police. But also what we saw were some very heavy-handed police tactics, at least a couple of times, fairly elderly women being carted off uh, and manhandled as they were taken off into police vehicles. So the events of today here in Paris really would have done nothing, Jake, to calm the minds of anyone. In fact, the unions are now working out what to do next. Uh, They'll be meeting tomorrow morning to decide whether the next big day of protest will be Wednesday or whether they wait, wait till June 8th, which is when the opposition parties get together to try and work out how they can get this pension reform Uh, repealed. But that is their point, that they will keep getting people out on the street to show that the amount of popular anger that has been uh, excited by the manner in which this pension reform has been pushed through is here to stay and will continue to make things as difficult as the unions can for Emmanuel Macron going forward, Jake. All right, Melissa Bell in Paris, France for us. Thank you so much. Uh, Coming up, the line of questioning from Donald Trump's attorneys today as he tried to challenge the credibility of E. Jean Carroll, the woman accusing the former president of both rape and defamation. Stay with us. Topping our national lead writer E. Jean Carroll, who accuses Donald Trump, Trump, Donald Trump of raping her in a New York department store in the mid-1990s, wrapped up her third day of testimony today. The civil trial is not just about the assault per se. She accuses the former president of battery, but also of defaming her 
by denying her allegation of sexual assault. Trump's defense team aggressively challenged Carol's motives in cross-examination today. And CNN's Paula Reed is live outside the New York courthouse for us. Paula, what stood out to you from Carol's testimony today? Well, Jake, actually moments ago, Trump's defense attorney just wrapped his cross-examination of Carol in this courthouse right behind me. He questioned her over two days for around seven hours. I was in court today, and what really struck me is unlike last week's testimony, which was very emotional at times, she at times would answer questions through tears. Today was much more technical. They were very often presenting her with evidence, asking her to respond. Now, their goal here is to undermine the credibility of her story and try to prove that she was politically motivated. Now, among the things she was asked about today, some Facebook posts, including one where she said she was a fan of The Apprentice. Another one where she asked people if they would have sex with Donald Trump for $17,000 if they got to keep their eyes closed. Now, she responded saying, yeah, she was a fan of The Apprentice. She has some friends who were on the show. And yes, she did indeed make jokes about Trump. They also asked her about portions of her book, specifically why she hasn't sued former CBS chairman Les Moonves, who also denied her account of an alleged assault. She responded by saying, well, he just denied it. He didn't call me names and grind my face through the mud like Trump did. Now, she was also asked, as she has been asked repeatedly, why she didn't report this alleged assault to the police. They pointed to her own advice column, where she advised women who have been assaulted to report and she said she was just ashamed and it was not something that she could report. But, Jake, there is so much riding on her testimony, specifically on this cross-examination, because at this point we do not expect the former president to testify, though Carroll's attorneys do say they will use some of his deposition in their case. So the judge denied Trump's attorney's request uh, for a mistrial earlier today. What was that about? Look, Jake, this was just a formality. The judge has made uh, several rulings that were not favorable to the defense. Uh, they've been frustrated. They haven't been able to question Carol the way they would like to. So in filing this motion, they're able to make a record of all of these decisions. So if they eventually appeal, they'll have that record. But look, we didn't expect that the judge would come out and say, you're right, I haven't done a very good job and grant this motion. So it was a formality. It was a blip and everybody moved on pretty quickly. All right, Paula Reed outside the New York courthouse. Thanks so much. Uh, Let's go to another courthouse in Arkansas. Hunter Biden, President Biden's son, appeared before a judge today. He is seeking to reduce the child support payments that he had previously agreed to in a settlement, payments for his four-year-old daughter, Navy, whom he has never met, and whom the Biden White House, as far as we can tell, has yet to publicly acknowledge. Biden's lawyer claims he is paying the child's mother $20,000 a month, totaling more than $750,000 so far. And as CNN's Sarah Murray reports, the judge ordered Hunter Biden to provide additional answers today about his finances. The president's son appearing in an Arkansas courtroom today. The hearing related to a years-old paternity dispute. After the mother of his child, London Roberts, accused Hunter Biden of ignoring earlier court orders and withholding evidence. Now the judge says Hunter must answer more questions about his investments, art sales and other financial transactions as part of the child support case. He will also sit for a June deposition where he'll be questioned under oath. You can't say, these are my tax returns. Good luck. You figure it out, the judge said, ordering up details on Hunter's taxes. This cryptic hide-the-ball game isn't going to cut it when we get to trial. What began as a 2019 paternity case, morphing into a battle over Hunter's overseas business dealings, the now infamous laptop, and other financial issues, all as Hunter faces scrutiny from both criminal and congressional investigators. 
Republican lawmakers have launched a sprawling probe into the Biden family's business dealings, seeking many of the same financial records London Roberts is trying to access. Well, we found a lot that's certainly unethical. We found a lot that should be illegal. The, the line is blurry as to what is legal and not legal with respect to family influence peddling. Last week, Hunter's lawyers met with Justice Department officials as prosecutors weigh whether to bring charges related to failure to file taxes, tax evasion, and a false statement charge related to a gun purchase. Sources say Hunter has maintained his innocence. I am absolutely certain, 100% certain, that at the end of the investigation that I will be cleared. As for the paternity case... Hunter initially denied fathering the child, but a DNA test confirmed he is the biological father. Hunter has since agreed to pay child support, paying $750,000 to the mother so far, his lawyer said in court. Now, the judge also told Hunter's attorneys they must make more of their court filings available to the public. She said that she has been generous in allowing many of the sensitive details of this case to remain under wraps. But the judge said in court today, quote, I can't gag the whole world. Jake. All right, Sarah, stay with us. I want to bring in former assistant U.S. attorney and CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. Ellie, so today the judge ruled that Hunter will now have to answer more questions under oath about his finances. Uh, the judge also chided Hunter Biden's legal team for, in, in her view, overly redacting their filing, hiding information that should be uh, public. What did you make of that? Is it significant? Well, Jake, the single most valuable asset that any lawyer or any party has in any case is credibility. And here it now seems that Hunter Biden and his lawyer have lost some credibility with the judge who said on the record that they had, quote, played games with some of their evidentiary obligations. And let's keep in mind, Hunter Biden opened this door. He's the one who went back to court and said, I want to pay less in alimony. And so now as a result of these rulings, Hunter Biden, A, is going to have to sit for an under oath deposition and B, turn over more documents about his dealings, including his sale of so-called artwork and any income that he received from any foreign sources that some of that information will be available to the other side and also publicly less than child support not less than alimony right right sorry yes yeah sarah it's hard to uh, separate politics from this case uh, because you see the mom uh here is represented by lawyers who were part of trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election and in addition a former Trump White House aide could play a key role in this case. That's right. I mean, there is this former Trump White House aide, Garrett Ziegler, and uh, London Roberts attorneys want to call this person as an expert witness. This is someone who has a website and has published materials purportedly related to Hunter Biden's, you know, laptop. And the Hunter Biden team has been more aggressive in how they're dealing with this. You know, one of them has sued him. They're talking about uh, potentially trying to get investigations opened into him. So they're really grappling with how you deal with people like this who are people that are, you know, in the right-wing sphere, have spread right-wing conspiracies, are in the Trump orbit, and now are part of this paternity case. Ellie, Hunter Biden is already under investigation by the Justice Department into his taxes and financing uh, finances. Um, does this case complicate things for him at all? It does, Jake, for sure. Hunter Biden has bigger problems than this, starting with the ongoing criminal grand jury investigation of Hunter Biden for potential tax fraud. And now he has opened the door by going back into this court to others getting access to his financial documents, including prosecutors, including Congress. So it's a questionable decision. I'm really astonished that Hunter Biden, given that he has a pending criminal investigation and given that there are pending congressional investigations, would go back into this court and try to reopen this Pandora's box. Sarah, uh, Congressman uh, James Comer, who's the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, he's been talking about Hunter Biden for a long, long Mm -hmm. time now. He says that Hunter Biden's legal team has been intimidating possible witnesses 
in his committee's probe of Biden's business affairs. What, what do we know about that? Is there any evidence for that charge? Well, you know, I think what we have seen is that over the last few months, Hunter Biden's legal team has been much more aggressive. They've gone to state and federal prosecutors. They've encouraged them to open investigations, to look into a bunch of people that were related to this Hunter Biden laptop. You know, they've even gone to the Congressional Ethics Office and said, you guys should investigate or review Marjorie Taylor Greene's comments uh, related to Hunter Biden. So I think that they have sort of seen the way this has played out over the last few years, and they want to be uh, aggressive. Is there evidence that they're actively intimidating witnesses? We haven't seen James Comer put that forward yet. Again, Comer has said he's looking not only into Hunter Biden's business dealings, but the whole Biden family, as well as the president's uh, potential, you know, involvement in any of Hunter Biden's foreign business deals with Joe Biden has denied. So with James Comer, you know, he's made a lot of lofty allegations. We're waiting to see what kind of meat he's going to have to back them up as his investigation continues. And Ellie, uh, Hunter Biden's lawyers met with uh, Justice Department officials last week, which could theoretically indicate that the criminal probe into Hunter Biden's business and financial dealings is wrapping up. Um, How likely do you think it is that he's going to face charges? This one feels like a really close call to me, Jake. This case has been pending investigation for five years, dating back to 2018. Now, that could be because nobody wants to make a call that will be politically unpopular either way, or it could be because the evidence is a really close call. If it was an obvious case that had to be charged, presumably it would have been charged within five years. And if it was an obvious declination, presumably it would have been tossed out without a charge well before this. And Jake, that meeting that happened between defense lawyers and prosecutors, nothing at all unusual or improper about that. Those meetings happen all the time. And they do tend to happen when we're towards the end of a case, when prosecutors are at that crucial charge or don't charge moment. All right, Ellie Hellenick, Sarah Murray, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Coming up next, what the second largest bank failure in U.S. history might mean for the money in your own bank account and for the U.S. economy. First, a major programming note. A CNN presidential town hall with Donald Trump next Wednesday, May 10th, 9 p.m. Eastern, moderated by Caitlin Collins. We'll be back in a moment. In our money lead, the second largest bank failure in the history of the United States. First Republic Bank has been pulled out of its death spiral as J.P. Morgan Chase is buying most of its assets. Federal regulators first took control of First Republic overnight, then immediately announced the sale to J.P. Morgan. CNN's Vanessa Yurkiewicz joins us now. Vanessa, explain how this all came together so quickly, and, and should Americans be worried about the security of their funds? Jake, this deal closed in less than 24 hours. The FDIC held an auction yesterday with bids needing to be entered by 4 p.m. Ultimately, J.P. Morgan with the winning bid. But overnight, about 800 employees from J.P. Morgan worked to close this deal. And what does that mean for customers of First Republic Bank? Well, it's largely the same experience, just with a different owner. The main thing people want to know is, is their cash safe? Are their deposits safe? The answer to that is yes. As part of this deal, J.P. Morgan, Jake, uh, Jake, assuring all deposits and all loans of First Republic. Jake. So, Vanessa, I mentioned that First Republic is the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. The largest, of course, was Washington Mutual in 2008, uh, for those wondering. But as J.P. Morgan Chase takes over First Republic, it's causing concern, a concern we've heard before. The banks are getting too big. 
Certainly. And after the 2008 banking crisis, banks consolidated. And then on today's news, you're seeing more bank consolidation. J.P. Morgan is the biggest bank in the United States, and it just got bigger today. And that is also partly because over the last seven weeks, uh, people moved their deposits, $50 billion worth, from other smaller banks into J.P. Morgan over concerns over a banking crisis. But uh, Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, was asked about this in a media call earlier today. Take a listen to how he responded to this question. You need large, successful banks. And anyone who thinks that it would be good for the United States of America not to have that should call me directly. He also went on to say that he believes that community banks and regional banks are essential to the banking sector. That diversity, he said, is very important, Jake. So as Kendall Roy might say, how are the markets reacting? Uh, It was a quiet day on Wall Street, uh, stocks dipping just slightly at the close. But investors really don't like to be shocked by news, and they weren't really shocked by this news today. That's why you didn't see a lot of market volatility. But investors are really turning their focus, Jake, now to the next two days as the Federal Reserve meets and ultimately on Wednesday makes a decision about just how much to raise interest rates. Ultimately, Jake, what happened today with J.P. Morgan and First Republic is going to play into that. That's what investors are going to be focused on over the next two days. Jake. All right, Vanessa, your cave. It's great reporting. Appreciate it. Turning to our world lead now in Sudan, where after a week of mounting frustration, the U.S. government has finally been able to help private American citizens stuck in Sudan get out. Today, the third U.S.-sponsored convoy reached the port of Sudan to escape ongoing violent clashes between Sudan's warring militaries. Uh, It's killed more than 520 people so far and left many more without food, without water, without electricity. CNN's Larry Madoo is is with Americans who have escaped Sudan who know that they are the lucky ones. These are the first Americans to arrive in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, on the U.S. naval ship Brunswick. It's small comfort after an anxious two weeks of conflict in Africa's third largest nation. I'm not going to lie to you, I didn't really like it. Uh, if it was up to me, I would have stayed to see things out, but unfortunately it just got too bad, you know. The situation got just, it got worse and worse by the minute, you know what I mean? There was no water, there was no electricity. This port city has become the main route out of Port Sudan. Several broken ceasefires later, people are desperate to escape. I'm basically doing a master's, and so I was in the Sudan to like do research ironically, on these very same topics. How's your family? Do you have family back in Sudan who cannot leave because maybe they don't have dual nationality in other places? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, that's the reality for most people that are currently in Sudan is that because of the hierarchy of citizenship, the way that it works, obviously, a lot of people couldn't even afford to leave Khartoum because of the prices of bus tickets. U.S. officials say about 1,000 Americans have been evacuated since the conflict began by land, sea, or air, after initially saying it was too dangerous to get private citizens out. This operation only brought 100 U.S. citizens across the Red Sea, but there are so many more still stuck in Port Sudan, hoping for transport like this to get them to Jeddah. We've been working very closely with um, international partners around the world and here in Saudi Arabia with our Saudi partners. Will there be more U.S. ships today or in the next few days? Not that I know of. As families escape the fighting, there are lighter moments, as even in war, Kids will still tease their parents. How do you feel about having left Sudan? Very good. How was it? Was it scary? I wasn't scared, but she was scared. Uh, she absolutely handled herself 100%. Yeah. 
And Larry Madoa joins us now live uh, from Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Larry, great reporting. How many more Americans remain and need help leaving Port Sudan? Jake, just these three convoys that have arrived from Khartoum over that 500-mile journey to Port Sudan, that's at least 700. But that is very likely an undercount that people who made their journey before the U.S. was officially helping coordinate this response and helping evacuate them overground. And just one more thing, there's so many kids living through this. I met one nine-year-old Omar today who told me he never wants to go back to Khartoum because he's afraid he might go back there and something happens and he can't get out, Jake. All right, Larry Madoa and Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Important story. Thank you so, so much for reporting it for us. Coming up, when a steady salary just isn't enough, what some school districts are doing to try to keep teachers on staff and make sure that they have a place to live that they can afford. Stay with us. In our money lead, the nationwide teacher shortage is prompting creative methods to attract and retain teachers. In Arizona, some districts are actually building homes right next to school solely for the teachers who would work at those schools. The incentive is drawing applicants. But as CNN's Gabe Cohen reports, some are worrying that the same districts employing these teachers will now be their landlords. Like so many teachers, Louisa Gamboa is sacrificing more and more for the job she loves. Give me one word that starts with the letter Q. That's why she lives with three other teachers in a three-bedroom home. We're on our way home to Prescott. And carpools 30 minutes to her special ed classroom in Chino Valley, Arizona. That was the closest affordable house. Yes, yes. And that's the only available one. Has it been difficult making it month to month? It's very difficult. Almost nothing to, to spare. The combination of low salaries and increasingly little affordable housing has worsened the teacher shortage in states like Arizona. So, desperate to attract educators, Chino Valley Unified School District is breaking ground on a teacher housing project, also known as a teacherage, building 10 tiny homes behind an elementary school, where teachers will pay well below the market rate for rent. If they can save a couple hundred dollars, I think that ultimately that could make the difference. It's a matter of money. Be watching, Dad. Jason White, a 50-year-old high school English teacher living with his parents near Phoenix, heard about Chino Valley's project and applied for a job. Do you think you'd take a job there if you didn't get that housing? I, I wouldn't, um, and it's not a think or not think. It's I simply wouldn't because I couldn't afford to live there. At least eight Arizona districts are creating their own teacherage, with some help from a federal grant. This vacant school near Sedona will be turned into 11 apartments. In Prescott, I think this could be a game changer for us. Six modular homes will sit behind an elementary school. I hate to compare it to this, but in some ways it's kind of like the Hunger Games. Having something like this available maybe gives us a leg up on the competition, so to speak. Teacher housing projects are popping up across the country, from California to West Virginia. But some are skeptical of teacherages. I think our concern would be that a professional educator would not only work for the district, but the district would also be their landlord. Marisol Garcia heads the Arizona Education Association, the union that represents public school teachers. And she sits on the governor's new educator retention task force. We're treating a symptom and not the illness. And that is, we don't have enough educators who want to enter the profession, who want to stay in the profession. A recent study found more teachers than usual left the classroom last year, at a time when students are still recovering from steep pandemic learning loss. Advocates blame a range of issues like workload, student behavior, politics in school, and most of all, salary. It shouldn't 
have to be a vow of poverty to be a teacher, and that's what it feels like. Megan Brown is leaving her special ed classroom next month after 12 years of teaching. She and her husband, a firefighter, live with her parents, struggling to save money to buy a home and start a family. We can't both be in helping professions, so um, I decided to leave. What is walking away from that like? I'm a really proud public school teacher, and it's hard. It's hard to know that I can't do it anymore. And Jake, a lot of districts have given teachers pay raises since the pandemic, but a new report found that the average public school teacher salary has only gone up about four and a half percent over the past two years, four and a half percent. That is well behind the high inflation that we've seen. And so financially, Jake, uh, life as a public school teacher really hasn't gotten better. If anything, based on that report, it's gotten worse. Gabe, do you know of any school districts doing this kind of thing outside of Arizona? Yeah, we're seeing proposals across the West, Las Vegas, Hawaii, really all over California, in addition to those teacher apartment buildings that have opened up in the Bay Area and and West Virginia. And it's really happening in these uh, more populated areas where housing prices have just skyrocketed. Yeah, I know college and universities do such things. It's interesting that it's come to this for high school. Um, Gabe Cohen, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Great report. A new warning just in from the Treasury Department. From the Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, on when the U.S. will start to default on its debt unless Congress takes action. It's a matter of weeks. That's next. Plus, two Republicans are going to join me. I'm going to speak with Congressman Tony Gonzalez of Texas about a key immigration policy ending next week. What, if anything, can Congress do? Plus, Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina will be here. I'm going to get her response to Democrats who say the GOP spending plan is going to cut critical U.S. services. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the cheese has been placed in the trap, but has Florida Governor Ron DeSantis bitten off more than he can chew when it comes to taking on Mickey Mouse. Plus, horrific scenes in Illinois where multiple people were killed and at least 30 injured during a dust storm. What is driving the dust storms? And leading this hour, the U.S. government could run out of money in just a matter of weeks. That is the latest warning just minutes ago from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, who says the U.S. government could hit its debt limit by June 1st, one month from today. I want to bring in CNN's Manu Raju on Capitol Hill, as well as CNN's Phil Mattingly uh, at the White House. Phil, this is a pretty stark warning and a pretty big deal for the U.S. economy. Look, there's no question about it at all, Jake. And I think the real question that I think everybody in Washington has been wondering for the past several months is, all right, when is this going to get serious? When is this going to get real? When are lawmakers, the White House, both sides of Pennsylvania Avenue going to grasp the consequence of what's happening right now. This should be that moment since for some reason it hasn't transpired yet. And that is the reality of the debt limit and the reality of that most of this, all of this process right now, since they've already reached the statutory debt limit, what the Treasury Department has been doing for the last several months uh, is using what's called as extraordinary measures, basically trying to keep stretching things out for lawmakers and uh, administration officials to find a path forward here. That is entirely tied to tax receipts every single month, of which you can only project and don't always know with exact certainty when they're coming in. What you heard from the Treasury Secretary today in a letter to lawmakers, also from the Congressional Budget Office and their own projections, is tax receipts in April came in lower than were expected. And because of that, the kind of critical date, the critical deadline has now moved up, moved up to a month from now moved up to a point where people need to figure out a resolution, figure out a path forward 
and no one is talking right now. When, when you talk to White House officials, when you talk to administration officials, they've made clear their position is the same as it has always been. The president wants a clean debt ceiling increase. There will be no negotiations on anything but a clean debt ceiling increase. Obviously, as Manu could tell you quite well, Republicans are in a very different place right now. The difference between right now and yesterday, where those two uh, positions stand, is they have about a month to figure this out. It is not a lot of time. Lawmakers out of session. The president has international travel. How they figure something out is still very much an open question, Jake. And to remind people, this is money that has already been spent. This is not future spending. It has already been spent. Manu, does this new deadline, one month from today, change anything when it comes to negotiations? We haven't seen uh, any real willingness to give on either side so far. Mm -hmm. Not at the moment, Jake. Of course, this letter just came out. But even Kevin McCarthy, the speaker, saying earlier today in Israel that they will not do what the White House has been demanding for the past several months, that the House will not pass a clean debt ceiling increase, meaning a debt ceiling increase without with no conditions whatsoever. The Republicans say there should be some conditions. They passed a bill last week along party lines. They lost a handful of votes, but enough to get it over the finish line that included a slew of cuts across the federal government. Also, to go after Biden policies. What McCarthy has been calling for some time is to have a negotiation with President Biden, try to find some sort of agreement between what the president wants and what the Republicans want and try to get it through both chambers of Congress. The White House has resisted that for some time. Senate Democratic leaders and House Democratic leaders are so far on the same side as President Biden. There are some concerns among some moderate Democrats, some in the rank and file, who are calling for direct one-on-one negotiations between McCarthy and Biden. And the question will be, now that we have a deadline, will that change? Will that pressure intensify to sit down and reach an agreement? Republicans say they are the only ones who passed a bill because the House Republicans did approve that proposal. Senate Democrats have not yet moved on any of their own proposals. And if they were to move on a clean debt ceiling increase that would, at this moment, that would not get the 60 votes it would need in order to get over the in, uh, a potential filibuster attempt, meaning at least nine Republicans would need to support that effort. That is simply not there. So, Jake, it is a major question whether they can get a deal. It's certainly the biggest scare of a potential default, default since 2011. And that time, the U.S. credit rating was downgraded as a Republican House battled a Democratic president. There was no deal in sight. The credit rating got downgraded. Ultimately, they did reach a deal. They did reach a deal to cut spending as well. So a lot of those cuts were later reversed. But nevertheless, we are. this is the first time we're seeing this scare happening in Washington since the past dozen years, how they resolve this is anyone's guess at this point, Jake. Yeah, and, and there's, a, uh, there's a new uh, social media app uh, called Blue Sky, and on it, uh, Senator Brian Schatz from Hawaii, a Democrat, he, uh, he just skeeted, quote, the only way to prevent default with a bipartisan majority and 60 in the Senate is a clean anti-default bill. I'm flabbergasted at some in the media treating the Speaker's bill, which is deeply unpopular and is coupled with the threat of the collapse of the economy, as anything other than extortion, unquote. Uh, it's Brian Schatz on, on, on uh, 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 skiing on, on Blue Sky. Phil, that seems to be uh, the White House position. You have th- nobody wants this. It's unpopular, Republicans. You can't extort us. S- stop. I'm not going to even talk to you about it. It's 
their view, and I think this is a view that's been uh, animated and informed by many of these types of battles over the course of the last dozen years, and especially that one that Manu was referencing in 2011, is this is no way to run a government. This is no way to run a country where this type of catastrophic outcome is on the line as you roll up to a deadline year after year after year. And while negotiations have always been kind of par for the course over the course of these last 12 or 13 years, the calculation was made by White House officials, by the president and by Democrats uh, in leadership in the House and the Senate that this was the moment to stop it. This was the moment to reverse course. If you want to have longer uh, term fiscal negotiations, there is a process for that. There are vehicles for that as well. This is not that. And that is why they, they have been so steadfast, so uh, firm in their position of no negotiations. They view this as a hostage-taking leverage type of moment for whichever party holds only one uh, chamber in Congress. They want to change that. The risk, of course, is if you can't get 218 votes on the House side, and that's what they're playing out right now. Republicans know that this is how it's been done for the last 12 or 13 years, much to the chagrin of the uh, administration when a Democrat is in the White House, and White House officials are saying it stops now. Something is going to have to give here because the results or the outcome of a default, which has never happened in U.S. history, would be catastrophic for markets, for jobs, for interest rates, for any type of consumer debt product rate that you might have. It's, it's, you can't necessarily describe it because we've never seen it before. Everybody just knows it would be terrible. And now we realize that the calendar is shrinking at a rapid pace. And there's no clear pathway out of this, Jay. Yeah, and Manu, I have to say, it does seem as though the Republicans have been able to stay more unified on their argument, hypocritical though it may be, given that they never raise these objections when Republicans are in the White House. They've been able to stay more unified and there have been Democrats breaking, especially some traveling with uh, Speaker McCarthy in Israel have said, you know, there should be negotiation, there should be conversation. Do Republicans feel like they have momentum because of that? Yeah, no question about it. And when we're referencing that last debt fight from 12 years ago, at that point, then Speaker John Boehner had a difficult time keeping his conference united. They tried to put pass a Republican-only bill with a whole hodgepodge of Republican priorities. That failed in the Republican House, and that gave Democrats significant leverage in the run-up to the final outcome in that deal to raise the debt ceiling. This is different. Kevin McCarthy, behind the scenes, worked for the last several months to try to get his conference all in line behind a bill. They have a narrow majority now than they did a dozen years ago. They still managed to get it passed. They knew this was just an opening offer, an effort to try to strengthen their, their argument that there needs to be some conditions attached to a bill. So the question will be whether any Republicans in the Senate break after the House passed its bill. I can tell you, Jake, in talking to some of those Senate Republican dealmaker types like Mitt Romney, for instance, I talked to him last week. He said this is not about Senate Republicans trying to cut a deal with Senate Democrats. This is about the White House trying to work with Kevin McCarthy and getting a deal. He is aligning himself with House Republicans on this issue. And you're going to hear a lot of House Senate Republicans say the same. Just shows you that even the ones who could potentially cut a deal are at the moment sitting this out. We'll see what happens in the coming weeks here, James. So, Phil, before you go, and I know you have a lot of reporting to do, both of you, when you say that the, the result might be catastrophic, yeah. what do you mean? What does that mean for mom and dad and, and, uh, and, and baby Vera watching at home? What, what does that mean, catastrophic? 
Yeah, it's widespread on both a macro and a micro level, at least based on uh, economic analysis from private sector firms. Again, we've never seen this play out before, but the immediate impact, I think most certainly, would be a spike in interest rates. I think from a broader macro perspective, it would almost certainly to be a recession. That would mean significant job losses as well coming at the same time. But I think probably most importantly, from a person-to-person, family and household perspective, you would see your consumer products, anything that you have uh, dead in to some degree, the interest rate would start to spike on that as well. So you're owing more money on credit cards. You're owing more money on wherever you're borrowing. Uh, and that would take a, that would have a significant impact. And then you add job losses to that. You add a tightening of credit to that as well. And I think there's just a, a kind of snowballing macro effect here where it would, I don't think you can necessarily quantify it because it's, it's tough to kind of get your head around. And I think more broadly as well, not to pull it back a little bit, then you have kind of the geopolitical international aspect of this is the U.S. defaults on its debt for the first time. How do other countries look at that? What does that mean going forward geopolitically? Uh, from an international economics perspective, I think the cascading effect is something that people don't even want to consider or broach. And I think that's why this becomes such a dangerous moment, because as Manu stated, 2011 is kind of the, the marking point. No one's ever gotten that close to that point again, even though there's been battles related to this when Democratic presidents have been off in office since then. Uh, this is the first one that feels as close to that and potentially worse, given how far apart things are with such a limited time window. All right, Phil Mattingly, Manu Raju with the breaking news. Thank you so much. Let's talk now with Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez of Texas. Uh, Congressman, uh, I have questions for you about immigration uh, as well, which is the original reason we booked you. Uh, but this obviously is breaking. I want to read you part of this warning from the Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen. She says, quote, after reviewing recent federal tax receipts, our best estimate is that we will be unable to continue to satisfy all of the government's obligations by early June and potentially as early as June 1st if Congress does not raise or suspend the debt limit before that time, unquote. Now, look, let me just posit a couple things. One, $32 trillion in debt is completely irresponsible. A pox on Democrats, Republicans, White Houses, Trump, Biden, Bush, Obama, everyone for getting us here. It's, it's, it, it, the interest on the debt alone uh, could be spent on so much better things. So no question that the debt's a serious issue. On the other hand, a lot of Republicans didn't really make a big deal out of this at all during the four years of Trump. And now we have a real deadline. Does this letter change any Republican calculus when it comes to making a deal with the White House or, or cutting some sort of clean debt ceiling bill agreement and then, and then coming back to have some sort of negotiation? I think it should change. Uh, first off, Jake, thank you for having me on. I think it should change everybody's calculus. You know, politics wouldn't be so bad if you didn't have to deal with politicians. It's always somebody else's fault. It's always the Senate Democrats or the White House or the, the White House is blaming the, the uh, Republican-controlled House. It's time for governing Republicans and governing Democrats to sit in the room and act like adults and make sure that the United States doesn't default on our loans. Is spending out of control? Yes, it is. Do we need to have that come? conversation. Yes, we do. Inflation is already here. It's here for a reason. So it takes real leadership to sit down, stop playing games, stop blaming somebody else, roll up your sleeves. We got 30 days to do it. This is what the country is looking for, direction, leadership going forward. Hopefully this letter sparks that. So House Republicans passed the deal. You voted for it, um, knowing that the U.S. Senate, controlled by the Democrats and the White House, would not support that deal. Um, so why, why even pass something that has no chance of passing the Senate? 
Yeah, it's a start. And look, I was on the fence, Jake. It was 215 to 215, uh, and I hadn't voted yet. I was on the fence. What you're going to see is this. I suspect what will happen is when the House does pass a debt ceiling bill, it is going to be in a bipartisan manner. This this initial offer, if you will, wasn't in a bipartisan manner. The reality is it's going to take both uh, Republicans and Democrats coming together, maybe not getting everything they want, but have a conversation. How do we curb some of the spending? How do we take care of our debts? And also, how do we move this country forward? It's time for real leaders to, to do that. And I look forward to getting that done in the next 30 days. The good thing is the House will be in session three out of the four weeks and there'll be opportunity to do that. So it was 215 to 215 and then you voted for it. Why, why did you decide to vote for it if you weren't 100 percent on it? Yeah, because this was the initial, this was the initial, uh, the, the beginning, if you will, of any of, of any conversation. I think uh, it goes a long way. And the other part is I didn't want to take any distractions off of the border. What is happening on the border right now is very real. Everyone's looking at May 11th as this day where, where you know, uh, where Title 42 is going to end. In my eyes, Title 42 might as well have already ended. Uh, places like El Paso are completely overwhelmed. I spent the day in Uvalde. Uvalde's 100 miles from the border. You know what happened there nearly a year ago, I sat down with the superintendent of the school and he's telling me the school in Uvalde is going into lockdown one to three times a week because of this border crisis. Mm. I sat down with a, a parent of one of the survivors in the classroom and he's telling me that they're having to deal with issues, uh, you know, uh, the, these issues when they're trying to heal and recover. I, I tell you those stories to go, the border crisis doesn't end on the border. It, it continues to spread and get worse. I want to ask you about the border, but before uh, I change subjects, I just want to ask, if it came up, a vote on, on, a, on a clean debt, debt bill to raise the debt ceiling, and remember, everybody watching, those are for, those are for items, are, we've already spent that money. That's like not new spending. That's, that's spending we've already, that the Congress and the President have already uh, authorized and agreed to. If it came up, clean debt ceiling with an, agree, an agreement of some sort or an arrangement of some sort to have a negotiation, would you be willing to think, of, would you be willing to vote for that? Possibly. I would need to have more conversations with the White House. I mean, if the White House won't if the White House won't talk to Congress now, when will they talk to us? So I think now's the opportunity to go. Let's sit down. Let's have discussions not only on this debt ceiling. Let's start building some trust about other uh, other important topics this country needs to deal with, like school violence, like the border, you know, national security, what's happening in Ukraine. There needs to be more dialogue between Congress and the White House. Enough with the finger pointing. We, we get enough of that. So let's talk about Title 42, which expires next week. Do Border Patrol agents, who you advocate for quite a bit, do they have the resource, resources they will need to respond when it expires? Jake, they don't. They are completely overwhelmed. And, and the reality is they've been overwhelmed for a while now. They're essentially out of the game. What has happened is uh, local law enforcement, sheriffs and deputy sheriffs are filling that gap. And now it's local PD. So imagine you're the police department of Uvalde and you're, now, you're no longer just worried about the city limits of Uvalde. You're responding to cases, you're responding to, to calls that are miles away from the city. What, I, what I'm getting at is Border Patrol agents are completely uh, tapped out. They are, they're doing everything they possibly can. I've been advocating we need to give them a pay raise. We need to give them a 14 percent pay raise. We need to give them the resources we need. And this is what the this is a part the Biden administration is missing. They're adding capacity. That's half of the equation. The other half of the uh, equation is, is getting court cases heard in days, not years. The reality, Jake, is nine out of 10 people do not qualify for asylum. So stop funneling down the asylum route. We need to have a real conversation on immigration reform. We need to have real conversation on getting people to come 
come over legally through work visas. This is an opportunity that the, the White House is missing, but I think there can be a role in Congress to, to fill that void. Before you go, um, I want to ask you about the manhunt underway uh, in Texas and at the border for a suspect who allegedly uh, shot five of his neighbors, uh, killed them, including a nine-year-old boy. Officials tell CNN um, that the suspect's current immigration status is unclear, but he'd entered the U.S. illegally and had been previously deported by immigration officials at least four times. Uh, As of now, the last we heard, authorities have have no idea where he is. Um, Have you heard anything more on the manhunt? I haven't. And honestly, it's scary. It's it's what it feels like living in Texas. Anything can happen at any point. And, and honestly, I don't care uh, the, the, the individual's uh, uh, legal status or the people that were murdered, their legal status. The reality is a murderer killed five innocent people for really, it seems like uh, no reason at all. This is dangerous. And this is what happens when we don't know who's coming into the border. This is what happens when we don't enforce the laws that are already on the books. Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez of Texas. Thank you so much. Always good to see you, sir. Thank you, Jake. Coming up, a U.S. Marine veteran killed in Ukraine. He's fighting for Ukraine's foreign legion. What was he doing in Bakhmut? Then, an enormous dust storm shutting down a major interstate after a series of deadly car crashes. The latest on the death toll and what is fueling the storm. Stay with us. we're back with our breaking news. The Secretary of the U.S. Treasury, Janet Yellen, just said a few minutes ago that the U.S. could default on its debt for the first time ever in just a matter of weeks. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy told CNN earlier today that President Biden has yet to talk to him about any sort of negotiation on the debt limit. Biden has made clear he will not negotiate. McCarthy weighed in on the showdown while visiting Israel. CNN's Hadass Gold is in Jerusalem for us. Hadass, exactly what did Speaker McCarthy tell you earlier today? Yeah, Jake, this was Speaker McCarthy's first trip abroad, but even thousands of miles away from Washington, D.C., the first questions pressed to him by the media were about this debt bill. Now, I asked him both in the press conference and after in a one-on-one about this. Now, he said he's very concerned about the debt ceiling, and he said he's looking forward to the president, quote, changing his mind and negotiating with us. Afterwards, I pressed him specifically on concerns raised by veterans. Of course, the VA has said that projected this bill would reduce its budget by 22 percent. Take a listen to what he told me. Do you have any regrets about how the bill was written, considering we're hearing some critics, criticism from the VA and those that it might threaten veterans' health care? Can you tell me where in the bill it cuts the VA? It doesn't. See, this is the damage that when people do not tell the truth about the bill. It actually goes to the funding where we were four months ago. If you look at back to the Obama-Biden budget that they passed for the next 10 years, this actually spends more than what they proposed at this time. And the work of Congress gets to decide where spending is, just like every family household. I'm very sad that the Democrats would think about cutting the veterans because we would not. Now, as you can see, McCarthy getting quite passionate in that answer on veterans. Now, the GOP has said it would protect veterans' benefits. But as far as I know, in that legislation, there was no specifics on how they plan to do so. Jake. All right. Hadass Gold in Jerusalem for us. Thank you so much. Let's bring in Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina, who's a member of the Veterans Affairs and the Oversight Committees. Uh, Congresswoman, thanks so much. Uh, You were a holdout until the very end of these negotiations uh, on uh, the Republican bill, the debt limit plan. Um, But you knew that it would never get Democratic support uh, and certainly never pass the Senate. What are your feelings about that vote now that the U.S., uh, we're told, could default in a month and Congress appears no closer to a deal? 
Well, I want the American people to know, number one, if the idea that Republicans do not want to protect veterans or our readiness at the DOD and the Pentagon or our defense forces here and abroad is a preposterous idea. And the president ought to come to the table. We have a precedent in the past where we've had a Democrat president and a Congress that wants to control spending, out of control spending, and they've worked together. And we should do this right now for the American people. The American people don't want us to be divided, especially on economic issues. And when it comes to default, it is a slight scare tactic because even in terms of tax revenues today, we get 11 times in terms of the tax revenue as the interest on the debt. So we're not going to default. And through the appropriations process, we can prioritize spending as needed. But the president and the Senate ought to come to the table and work together with Republicans and make some decisions about how we move forward and take on spending in the debt. We've got to do it. $31 trillion in counting is, is too tenuous for the American people to absorb any longer. Yeah, no, that's absolutely too much debt. It's also true that Republicans only do this when there's a Democrat in the White House. Uh, there were three debt ceiling votes during the Trump years, and Kevin McCarthy had no problem raising it then. Uh, and I have no problem calling out the former president who put $8 trillion of debt you know, while he was president. This current president, President Biden, has added $4 trillion. That's $12 trillion just over the last six years, Jake, by Republicans and Democrats alike. And quite frankly, I'm tired of it. I want them to be adults, you know, man up and get to the table and say, we're going to figure this thing out. If it takes 20 years to balance the budget and rein in spending, so be it. But under Republican majorities in the past, we had cut cap and balance under the Obama administration. We worked with Republicans. So did President Clinton, who was the last president to balance the budget. And that was in 1998. And we've got to find a way to work together. And now's the time to do it. So your colleague, Republican Tony Gonzalez of Texas, he just told me that he would consider, consider passing a clean bill to raise the debt ceiling if there was some sort of agreement with the White House on future negotiations. I mean, we're now like in actual crunch time, real world consequences. You know, the U.S. has never defaulted on its debts. Could this actually happen? If, if so, it would be catastrophic. Would you consider that if it came up, if, we, if we're getting closer to this? If there was a, a gentleman's agreement or a handshake that said, hey, we're going to find a way, we're going to agree to balance the budget in 15 years, 10 years, 20 years, some time frame, then I think that's absolutely doable. And again, I want to reiterate, there is precedent for us as a nation when we have a Democrat president and a Republican-controlled House of working together. 1994, we had a 10-year plan to balance the budget. President Clinton did it in four years. So we can do this, but we have to make some tough decisions. And I don't think it's too much to ask to say, let's go to pre-COVID spending levels to try to rein in some of the debt that we have. And quite frankly, the plan that was put forward isn't going to reduce the debt, which is why this conversation is so important. And, And look at the midterms, Jake. The American people don't want us to be divided. They want us to come together, work together, and make some of these tough decisions together. And that's what I'm asking the president and and Senator Schumer to do today. Come to the table. We're willing to work with you if you are willing to work with us. And that's not a a tough order here. Yeah, no, I I, I don't disagree with what you said. CNN has just confirmed that President Biden has called all four congressional leaders, uh, McConnell, Schumer in the Senate, and then obviously uh, Hakeem Jeffries and Speaker McCarthy in the House, to try to schedule a meeting on the Excellent. debt. What, what would you Excellent. say uh, to your colleagues and to Speaker McCarthy about this? Well, to come, to, to come together, work out a plan that reigns in spending that's been caused by both parties. Both parties need to sit down and fix it. I have a plan to balance the budget in five years, but I, I get it's probably too aggressive for most people in Congress. 
Heck, I would take 20 years at this point, pass a clean debt ceiling, have a plan to balance the budget. And I think all of us can sigh a bit of relief. And quite frankly, Republicans and Democrats should be demanding this from Republican and Democrat leaders right now. I'm encouraged to hear that, that that news is breaking right now because that's a new position for the president. And that's encouraging to hear this afternoon. So McCarthy and you uh, earlier denying attacks from Democrats that the Republican bill would cut benefits for veterans. Um, This after President Biden tweeted, quote, uh, 217 Republicans voted to undermine veterans health care, which includes a photo of you near the top. Um, Now, just to I I want I want. No, no, no. Listen, I'm not done. I'm not done. It is true that benefits for veterans could theoretically be cut. uh, But it is also true that in the legislation, there are no specific proposed cuts, not just for Correct. veterans, but for anything. No, there's no specifics. There's no direct cuts to veterans. Now, right. what it does do is put spending levels to pre-COVID levels. Now, the spending priorities, how we spend the money, would be determined traditionally through the appropriations process in the House. That's where it would originate. That's where it would start. But nobody, and I can tell you, Democrats too, and Republicans, nobody wants to cut veterans' benefits. Nobody wants to hurt Social Security. And we shouldn't politicize this debate. I mean, these these folks need to grow up and negotiate, get to the table and talk and discuss how we're going to do this because both sides are at fault. Both sides need to take responsibility and both sides need to move our country forward in a responsible and reasonable way. That's what the American people want. That's what we need to deliver. Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina, always good to see you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Just ahead, another U.S. veteran killed in Ukraine fighting alongside Ukrainian troops. The latest on that grinding, grueling battle for Bakhmut. That's next. And we're back with our world lead. Today, the U.S. State Department confirmed that a U.S. Marine veteran was killed on the outskirts of Bakhmut, Ukraine. 26-year-old Cooper Harris Andrews was likely killed by a mortar on April 19th while helping citizens evacuate the embattled city, according to his mother. She says his body still has not been recovered because of the fierce ongoing fighting there. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh reports for us now from southeastern Ukraine as the world awaits a major new phase in the war and in the battle in Bakhmut. It was hard to get much uglier, but each dawn, still the battle for Bakhmut grinds on. Ukraine Monday said it had pushed Russian forces back who had abandoned positions. Months of agonizing fighting for about a football field every day, say analysts. Leaving little standing. And Russian injured, the soldiers here said abandoned. There was a guy laying there in the reeds, he says, yelling, guys, come and help me for three days, only a hundred yards from the Russians. Also emerging, too, on this, the road of life, the last way in and out of the city, news of the death of Cooper Harris Andrews, aged 26, a former U.S. Marine and firefighter from Cleveland, Ohio, who felt compelled to join Ukraine's fight. Cooper wanted to correct things. We had a lot of conversations about fashion. I used to say, Cooper, so that means you're just going over there to drive an ambulance. No, you just don't believe in stuff. You like do something about it. Harris, let's make a picture for history. 
Here he is near the front line in January as part of the Foreign Legion. Described as ideological to the core and anti-authoritarian, his body has yet to be recovered from Bakhmut as the fighting is too intense. His mother recalled the last time they spoke. I asked Cooper, because I'm like Cooper's mom, like, is there anything I can try and get to you or send you? And Cooper said, yes. Can you send me hot sauce and chopsticks? <laughs> so I have like a thousand chopsticks in my house because I was trying to get chopsticks for everyone. I figured Cooper was chopsticks. And I have all these little packets of um, hot sauce that I was going to send to Cooper. Over the past weeks, graphic battle footage has emerged, showing what it's like when Russians get into a Ukrainian trench network. Here, a soldier races into cover. But soon, a shell hits. They are all miraculously okay, but the attack has started. Watch, and you see a Russian approach and throw a grenade. He misses. And they go on to shoot down Russians advancing meters from them. Shells continue to land. The attack persists for over 10 minutes. But the brutal fight for Bakhmut goes on and on. So what is happening around Bakhmut? A matter of weeks ago, the Russians seemed to be signaling that they were in the ascendant, and then we had the Russian head of the Wagner mercenary group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, over the weekend suggest they're running out of artillery shells and might have to pull back, and now Ukraine says they're on the front foot and Russians are abandoning their positions. The city's becoming a kind of signalling game for both sides to project strength and then possibly drag each other's forces in. It is something of a sideshow despite the extraordinary loss of life. One indication from John Kirby, the National Security Council spokesperson, is they might, Russia, have lost 100,000 uh, troops since December, mostly fighting for Bakhmut. That's casualties, dead and wounded. The real eyes, though, right now on the larger counter-offensive, most likely not around Bakhmut, but in the south of Ukraine, Jake. All right, Nick Payton Walsh, uh, live for us in Zaporizhia, Ukraine. Thank you. Stay safe. Joining us now to take a, a step back uh, on the war in Ukraine, take a 30,000-foot uh, view, uh, The Atlantic magazine's editor-in-chief, Jeffrey Goldberg, he and staff writer Ann Applebaum, wrote the June edition's cover story entitled The Case for the Total Liberation of Ukraine. And you can read that online uh, today. Jeffrey, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. You write that a victory for Ukraine can be easily... Defined, it would mean sovereignty, safety, justice, but, but getting there, not so easy uh, to define. You spoke with Zelensky mm-hmm. uh, at length twice. Um, where does his optimism uh, about a victory, about a path to this, this, this proposal, um, where does it come from? His optimism comes in part from the serial uh, underestimation of the entire world about Ukraine's capabilities. Sure. I, I mean, you know, you, we, we talk about Bakhmut. Uh, Russia bogged down in this tiny town, relatively small town, uh, for months and months and, and months. Um, if you recall, think back 14, 15 months ago, we thought Ukraine was going to be wiped out, wiped off the map in a matter of days. Uh, and, you know, we were in Kiev. Uh, I was in Kiev last year. I was here there this year. Um, the change is remarkable, even though it's under periodic rocket attack. Uh, 
you know, there is no existential threat to most of the country anymore. And what, what I mean by all of that is that we have underestimated their resolve, their capabilities, um, their desire to win. Russia has no morale whatsoever. The Ukrainians are all morale. Our argument, of course, is that Ukraine, the, 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 the fighters of Ukraine can do this without foreign troops, without U.S. troops, NATO troops. But what they can't do without is the support, uh, is, is the, the American material, the weapon systems, the most advanced weapon systems. This is the year to do it. Um, obviously, the U.S. has provided a tremendous amount of material to the Ukraine. Yeah, more than anyone by far. By, by far, by far. But, but the argument now is if they have just a little bit more help, and a little yeah. bit more concentration of help, they'll actually be able to change the lines on the battlefield. You also write about the looming counteroffensive. Yeah. You write, quote, Ukrainians are waiting for the counteroffensive. Ukraine, uh, Europeans, east and west, are waiting for the counteroffensive. Central Asians are waiting for the counteroffensive. Belarusians, Venezuelans, Iranians, and others around the world whose dictatorships are propped up by the Russians, they are all waiting for the counteroffensive, too. This spring, this summer, this autumn, Ukraine gets a chance to alter geopolitics for a generation, and so does the United States. Do you think President Biden agrees with that? Uh, I think President Biden feels that very much. I think he has a pretty acute understanding of the centrality of the U.S. role here. The U.S. is the leader, to use a somewhat archaic term, but no longer archaic, mm-hmm. uh, U.S. is the leader of the free world. Right? Ukraine, Ukraine can keep itself from losing, however we define losing, right? That's what they proved to us in those opening days of the war when they didn't get steamrolled, right? Ukraine cannot win without the United States behind it 100%. The danger here, I mean, obviously there's a, there's a range of views inside the Biden administration. I think everyone's heart, certainly the president's heart, is with the people of Ukraine and the president of Ukraine. I think there are differing uh, views about whether the Ukrainians can actually push Russia out of all of its territory, all the territory that it's holding, right, Crimea. including Crimea. Crimea, the hardest one, obviously, and right. it's obviously an interesting debate over whether they can uh, achieve that. The main fear, of course, is that the U.S. is trying, and Biden has done a very good job of doing this, calibrating to, to, to calibrating this so that they don't provoke Russia into doing something insane. And the worry, of course, is that the Russians will use a nuclear weapon in some form or fashion. Yeah, President Biden, when I interviewed him last fall, seemed to suggest that Putin was halfway there uh, in terms of the the stability, uh, but right. I want to. You met the interesting part of your story. You met with Ukrainians who are working in these privately financed yeah. drone workshops, and you saw how drones that were used uh, for wedding photography before the war were, were, had been transformed into lethal weapons that could even destroy a, a, a tank. Is the ingenuity of the Ukrainian people one of its uh, most secret weapons? This is this is this is why they don't need troops from the United States. They they don't need that much advice from the United States. They need, they need material help. The, these, these drone factories are, are amazing. The defense minister of Ukraine told us something that was fascinating. He said, when the war started, people thought that this was going to be a war between a large Soviet army and a small Soviet army. But what they didn't understand was that Ukraine had changed over the last yeah. 20 or 30 years and was now a Western army, an innovative or flattened hierarchy. The Russians are still fighting like Soviets. The Ukrainians are fighting like American special forces. Um, the drone workshops are just a case in point. The Russians in Bakhmut and elsewhere are just trying to go home alive, right? They don't care. They, the, the morale is extremely low. The Ukrainians are fighting for their cities. They're building, I mean, they're using, they're using literally wedding drones. They're using model airplanes so as drones. And they're doing this in hundreds of different locations on their own initiative. 
It's totally fascinating to watch. The story is uh, The Case for the Total Liberation of Ukraine, written by uh, Jeffrey and uh, Ann Applebaum on TheAtlantic.com right now. Uh, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Amazing reporting. Mangled wreckage, the massive dust storm that has closed a major interstate and killed at least six people. What caused this? That's next. In our national lead, at least six people are dead and at least 30 others injured after a horrific dust storm led to pileups on roads in central Illinois. Let's bring in CNN meteorologist Chad Myers. Chad, how long could this storm last? Well, I would say at 8 o'clock tonight, the winds will get down below 25 miles per hour. So that will be done. This is a very localized event on a very large-scale wind event that happened today. Overnight, winds are down to about 5 to 10. But tomorrow, the winds actually come back. Everywhere that you saw orange, that's a wind gust over 40 to 45 miles per hour. It's part of this storm that's circulating here around the Great Lakes. And on the west side is the wind. Ironically, though, in this dust storm area, it did rain a little bit on Saturday. So what caused it? Yes, we know there's wind. What caused it, Jake? The farm fields. The farmers tilling the land as they do this time of year. Here's Chicago. Here's I-55. Here's Springfield. All the way south of Springfield here. What's to the west of this highway? Farmland. Farmland where the till, you turn over the old silage from last year, and you're putting it in the ground. And even though there was a little bit of rain over the weekend, not enough to counteract all of the people out here with their discs turning the land over, the dust flying in the air in this very localized event. Man-made, for sure, Jake. All right, Chad Myers, thanks so much. Coming up, the latest round in the battle between Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and the happiest place on earth. In our politics lead, the Ron DeSantis-appointed board overseeing the area surrounding Disney World will sue the entertainment giant in response to Disney filing suit against Florida last week. Disney accuses DeSantis and the board of weaponizing government power against the company after Disney publicly opposed a DeSantis-backed state law restricting lessons on sexual orientation and gender identity in schools K-3. through This growing feud between DeSantis and his state's largest employer— and his most famous employer, comes as Governor DeSantis is expected to launch a presidential bid, perhaps as soon as this month. The breaking news this hour, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warning the U.S. may default on its debt by June 1st. That's just over four weeks away. Wolf Blitzer's going to have a lot more on this incredibly important story in the Situation Room. And Wolf, you're going to have a, a notable guest weighing in. That's right, Jake. Uh, as Secretary Yellen is warning that the debt limit is a ticking time bomb, we're going to speak with one of her uh, predecessors, the former Treasury Secretary, Larry Summers. We'll get his take on Yellen's June 1st timeline for reaching the debt limit and the potential, God forbid, for an unprecedented default. There's a lot to discuss as the president has now invited congressional leaders, the top leadership, to meet with him next week over at the White House with the threat of an economic catastrophe clearly hanging over their heads. It's all coming up right here in the Situation Room. And that, of course, begins right at the top of the hour. Jake? It's five minutes away, Wolf. We'll look for that soon. Thanks so much. Still ahead on the lead, the giant seaweed blob washing up in Florida. Which beaches are already being buried? And where is the blob heading next? Lastly, in our national lead, massive amounts of clumpy, smelly sargassum seaweed are starting to pile up along Florida's east coast beaches. There's already 
So much of it, tractors have to scoop it out, and some scientists say this is just the tip of the iceberg. While it is natural for sargassum seaweed to drift in from the Atlantic Ocean, it's the amount that is catching the attention of scientists who, tracking the seaweed, believe it could be the largest amount on record, spanning more than 5,000 miles from the coast of Africa to the Gulf of Mexico. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. If you have Blue Sky, you can find me there, of course. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead once you get your podcasts, all two hours, sitting there like a, well, I was going to say sargassum seaweed, but I, I want you to enjoy it, so never mind. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer. He's right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.